Well, last week we started a new series called Circles of Influence. This is the third or fourth year in a row where we have taken several weeks out of the summer to invite guest speakers to come who have influenced the thinking of our organization. Five years ago, we sensed God leading us into India, particularly Kolkata, India. And about a year into that journey for this church, Uh, we became familiar with the work of another organization called International Justice Mission. For the last four years, this church has partnered with IJM and some other partners uh, around Calcutta and other parts of India uh, to focus on the issue of human trafficking. And um, it has changed us. It has influenced us. It has changed the way we do things. As a, as a church, we have committed to running towards the injustices of the world. And so our guest speaker this morning is a guy by the name of Gary Haugen. Gary is a lawyer, he's a dad, he's a husband, he's a writer, but he's also the founder of this organization, International Justice Mission. So will you welcome Gary to our stage this morning? Well, good morning, everybody. And Dave, thanks for the kind introduction and the invitation to be with your church family this morning. It's a great joy for me to get to finally be here at Parkview Community Church. I know so many of you have been traveling in with us at IJM in this work of justice, companions with us in some of the just extraordinary miracles that God is doing, but also in some of the difficult things. Um, I'm just back from our office in Nairobi where... Uh, We've experienced a a terrible tragedy this past month, and I know many of you have been praying for us. Uh, One of my colleagues, uh, lawyer Willie Kamani, was murdered about three weeks ago by the police. Uh, They also murdered uh, the client we were working for and uh, and the driver. And um, uh, it was a a terrible uh, incident of where we were seeking to defend this young man who was being abused by the police in the slums who frequently are just extorting money from the poor. And um, in the process of, of bringing to account the police abuse taking place, and then after court one day, some police just abducted the three of them, and then a few days later, we found their bodies in the river. And um, so this has been a great grief for us, and I'm very grateful for those of you who have been praying and shouldering this burden with us. I do want you to know that the, the team in Kenya has been experiencing the power of God through the midst of this. I was able to go and be with them, and um, you can see the way that the power of Christ makes a miraculous difference in the strength and courage that they have, the way they're loving each other. We are grateful to see now that the men who we believe committed this murder have been arrested and are now being properly charged. And, uh, but I just want to thank uh, Parkview Community Church for just being part of this journey uh, with us. It matters and has a big impact uh, on us that you love and support us in these and other ways. But I would like this morning for us to maybe just consider for just a few minutes our own journey of following God. Uh, I have been trying to follow Jesus now for a long time. I'm 53 years old and I think 
it was probably 40 years ago that that journey for me of following Jesus began. And if, if you're at it for a long time, I don't know if you would experience this, but sometimes it's, it's worth asking, after all these years, are Jesus and I really interested in the same things? In other words, we all sort of know what our preoccupations and passions are, right? We can make a list of those things, and the people around us can make a list of those things. Oh, she's passionate for sure about this. He is really focused and occupied with this or that. But what if we put all of those things aside for just a few moments, and if this morning, what if we just ask, but what is God passionate about? Not mildly interested in, but what are the things that make his heart just beat fast? And this morning, I'd like to have us spend a few moments considering two of the more unfamiliar passions of God. And they're very simple. First of all, it's just a passion and a love for the world. And secondly, a passion for justice. So first, God's passion for the world. We know from the scripture, God loves the world, right? John 3.16, the most basic verse from the gospel says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The whole incarnation, the sending of Jesus into the world, is motivated by God's love for the world. Now, by this, of course, we don't mean the actual globe, right? You know, the dirt that makes up the earth. It means all the people in the world. God has this consuming passion and love for the people of the whole world. Now, by contrast, what am I passionate about? See, to be truly, just brutally honest with you, every single day what I'm passionate about is me. Yeah. I love me every day. I'm, and I'm fascinated by me every single day. This morning, I didn't have to wake up and go, now, Gary, remember to think about yourself today. Now, this is more narrow than I'm supposed to be, and I, I get that. And so I try to broaden my heart a little bit. And so on a really good day, I will find myself extending love and compassion to everybody in the world who's in my immediate family. <laughs> and this is a pretty good day in my household, right, where I'll extend more love and compassion to my wife and my four kids than I do to myself. And they usually circle that day on the calendar and... <laughs> They pray it happens maybe again next year, right? And, uh, and I don't know. Then maybe I'll have some even larger spiritual experience. I'll find my heart beginning to really expand. And I will find myself extending love and compassion to everybody in the universe that I like and who likes me and who is like me. And this then becomes my world of passion and focus and energy and anxiety and hope and aspiration, this little shriveled world of me and mine. Now, I think Jesus probably finds this perfectly natural. This is totally predictable. But I don't think everything that's natural and predictable is necessarily godly, right? So at least we can agree together maybe upon what the goal is. And even if we're not there, isn't the goal to have a heart that's becoming more like the heart of God that shares something of his love and passion for the world. 
But I think we are living in an era where a love for the world is getting harder and harder. The preoccupations of fear, the preoccupations of self are getting smaller and smaller in many respects. Now, years ago, this hit me very personally. Long time ago, in 1994, I was working at the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. as a prosecutor. I had all the regular preoccupations of my job, and I wanted to do a good job at work, and my wife and I were just having uh, twin girls coming into the world, and so we're all panicked about that and all these preoccupations. And then I get sent to this little country in Africa called Rwanda, because you might remember in 1994, there was this horrific genocide that broke out, and 800,000 people were murdered in eight weeks' time. So that's like having 9-11 happen three times a day, every day, for eight weeks. That's what they experienced in this little country of Rwanda. And so afterwards, I was sent over to be the director of the UN's genocide investigation to bring the leaders of the genocide to justice. And all murder investigations just begin with where the bodies are. And most of those hundreds of thousands of bodies were in churches because the Tutsis had run, the Tutsi minority group had run to churches for protection, but then the Hutu neighbors would wade into them and just hack them all to, get, to death. And so I'm, as part of the investigative process, having to sort through the massive carnage of that. But I can tell you the hardest part for me was not sorting through all the bodies. It was actually having to interview the survivors of these massacres, and especially the children. And one day I had to interview a little eight-year-old girl who had survived one of these massacres. She had actually lay amongst the dead for about two and a half days in one of these churches. And I was sitting across from this little table from her, trying to get her story from her. And, and the first thing you would have noticed about her was the first thing I noticed, which was really just how beautiful she was. Somehow she still had these eyes that, that still had this sparkle to them. And she would say something funny to make herself laugh. And then these white teeth would just burst across her face. And she was gorgeous. And I remember just looking into the face of this little eight-year-old Rwandan girl when it occurred to me in a way I had never thought of before that the maker of the entire universe specifically intended that this one little Rwandan girl should exist. And not only that, but he intended that this little girl would exist to be with him forever. And he wanted this particular one to be with him forever so badly, he was willing to give up his own son to be murdered and tortured to make sure this little girl right in front of me would be with him forever. And suddenly I'm just blown away by the cosmic significance of this one little Rwandan girl. But I also knew from the pink machete scars across the back of her head and her neck that she was just about a millimeter of a machete blow from being part of just that huge pile of corpses outside the church. And then it occurred to me that, of course, 800,000 other Rwandans, each of whom was just as precious to God as that little girl, all 800 of them could just drop off the face of the earth one summer in 1994. And for me as an American Christian, honestly, it wouldn't affect my day at all. 
And suddenly, in that moment, I could just sense that there was a significant difference between the way Jesus was regarding the world and the way I was regarding the world. And I didn't want to be that far away from what really mattered to him. And so now it's been difficult, but it's been an effort to try to expand the borders of my heart beyond this little shriveled world of just me and mine to try to share just something of his love and passion for the people of the world. You know, it's been interesting because as you do that, as you try to to enter into the world, to try to share something of the love of God with that world, what do you think is probably the most difficult thing for people in our world to believe about the Christian faith? In my experience, the hardest thing to believe is simply the idea that God is good because they're in so much pain. You know, of course, there's 10,000 kids today who are going to die in our world just because their parents can't get them enough food. And there'll be 10,000 again tomorrow and 10,000 the next day. And if you think about it, how are those families supposed to somehow believe that God is good? Or the 1.5 billion people have no access to medical care at all of any kind. They're not arguing about whether their medical plan will allow them to choose their doctor or not, right? They, They don't ever get a doctor. And when they're suffering and hurting and their kids are hurting, like how do they believe that somehow there's a good God in the world? We could go to all kinds of stories around the world of such enormous suffering and hurt, and I just have to ask, how are they supposed to believe that God is good? And in fact, what is God's plan for making it believable that he is good to all these people who are suffering so much in our world? Well, the answer from the Bible is really surprising because it turns out that we're the plan and that God doesn't have another plan. You know what Jesus said to us, his disciples, in Matthew chapter 5? He says to us, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men that they'll see your good works and then they'll give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I love this because you notice we usually think Jesus is the light of the world. But, and that's true. But Jesus is saying, you're the light of the world because you are the body of Christ. And you notice it doesn't say, you might be the light of the world. You could be the light of the world. I sure hope they turn out to be the light of the world. He says, you're it. And that's why the Apostle Paul says one of the most amazing things in all of Scripture, if you think about it, in 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says, God is making his appeal to the world through us. And so for 2,000 years, what have Christians been doing? They've been trying to make it believable that God is good by going to those who are in need and showing and declaring to them the goodness of God. So if there's people in our world who are suffering and hurting because they don't know that God loves them and forgives them of their sin through the sacrifice of his son Jesus and they have eternal life and hope and forgiveness in him, we're the ones who actually get to go and share that story with them. And if others are hurting because they don't have food, 
Well, then we can actually share some of ours. And if others are suffering because they don't have doctors or medicine, then we can also help them with that. And if others are suffering because they don't have shelter, then we can help them with some shelter. And, and when we do these things, and when we help the kids or teachers who are, don't even have supplies to learn, and we help share what we have so that they can, they see the body of Christ show up. And now it becomes believable to them that God is good. But it's interesting because in our world, there's another category of people who are suffering. And it's interesting if you think about this with me because they're not suffering because they don't have access to the gospel. They're not suffering because they don't have food or doctors or medicine or shelter or education. They're suffering because of the intentional abuse and oppression of other people. See, the reason Jehoshaphat in Kenya was suffering was because there were police officers who were intentionally trying to hurt him. And then when Willie tried to intervene, they intentionally hurt Willie. There's a category of people who are suffering in the world because of injustice. Now, that word injustice in America has become pretty unhelpful, right? Because it means everything and it means nothing. And so what does it actually mean? Because pretty much as an American, I've pretty much come to feel like I'm a victim of injustice pretty much every day, like almost all day, right? <laughs> like I was at the grocery store the other day and it was unbelievable outrage happened. I, now, uh, we have... Um, express lanes in our grocery store, and you probably have express lanes, right? And, and every express lane has different rules, I take it, but in my grocery store, there's a big sign, the express lane says 10 items only. So I'm, an, I'm a maximizer, I'm there as I'm always in the express lane, and I've got my 10 items, and I'm ready to go. Guy in front of me, kid you not, 13 items <laughs> in the basket, totally jamming up the express lane, totally breaking the law. And I'm getting so mad and outraged about this. I, I want to sue the guy right now. I'm a lawyer and I, I, I could do this. I'm just getting so... Well, just so we know when the Bible actually talks about injustice, this is not what it's talking about. Injustice in the Bible is actually a particular kind of sin. It's about the abuse of power. The abuse of power to take from other people the good things that God intended for them. Their life, their liberty, their dignity, the fruit of their love and their labor. And when someone who is stronger abuses that power to just take from someone else, God calls this the sin of injustice. This is the sin that King David committed, you'll remember, when he abused his power as king to take another man's wife. And then he abused his power as king to actually take that man's life. And the prophet Samuel had to go, uh, prophet Nathan had to go confront him for his abuse of power. That's why in, Cle in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them but on the side of the oppressor was power. So what does this look like in our world today? Well, I've been working for almost the last 20 years with International Justice Mission, and what we do is we have teams all around the world serving in very, very poor communities 
to serve the poorest of the poor when they are victims of violent abuse and oppression. And so now I have a really clear idea of what injustice looks like. And I'll never forget meeting a little boy in India named Kumar. When Kumar was about five years old, uh, his parents passed away, and so he was left orphaned, and he was living in a poor rural area. And so by the age of eight, he had found himself sold into a brick factory as a slave. Kumar works about 12 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week, making and carrying bricks inside a brick factory. There's about 100 other slaves held by just violent terror inside this facility. There are in India alone about 14 million people held in slavery against the law entirely, but still held in slavery. In fact, there are more people in slavery in the world today than any other time in human history. And so the question is, how is Kumar and all the other millions of people who in this patch of history are living in slavery, how are they somehow supposed to find it believable that God is good? Does God seem good to Kumar today or tomorrow? What would make that believable for him? Or what about Alina? I met Alina many years ago when she was just 11 years old. She had been horrifically and violently sexually assaulted by a man in her town in the Philippines. She lived in a, a, a rural town. But the thing that made it so brutal for her was that the man who committed the assault was actually the chief of police in her town. We work in communities where up to 40% of girls are victim of rape or attempted rape by the age of 14. And so for these tens of millions of girls who are suffering under this just chaos of relentless abuse, how are they somehow supposed to find it believable that God is good? Or what about Jyoti, who was 16 years old when I met her. She lived in a, a rural area in India for the poor family, but she wanted to help our, her family move forward. And so when some women came to her and said, hey, Joti, come with us. We can get you a, a job in the big city. She went with these ladies. But on the way there, they gave her some tea that was drugged. And she fell unconscious. And they took her to the city of Mumbai and they sold her into a brothel. And they stuffed her into this underground room and beat her terribly for several days until she was forced to provide services to the customers there. And she has to service between 20 and 30 men a day. Seven days a week, never let outside of that brothel. UNICEF tells us that there are more than two million children held in forced prostitution in our world today. So again, how is Joti, how are these girls supposed to find it believable that God is good? In fact, if we think together, if we put our minds together and think, how does God regard all of this suffering in the world? What do we know from the scriptures about that? Well, the answer from the scripture is pretty clear. It's clear that God hates this abuse with a passion and he wants it to stop. There are so many places we could go in the scriptures to see this, but one of the places I came upon so clearly when I was in Rwanda is Psalm 10, because it gives this very stark description of all the violence and abuse in the world, and it makes you think, oh God, yes, the psalmist knows this world that we live in. But it finishes with this declaration about what's true of the character of God. And in verses 17 and 18, it says, you, O Lord, hear the desire of the oppressed. You encourage them and you listen to their cry. 
You defend the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Psalm 35.10 says something similar. It says, O Lord, who is like you? You rescue the poor from those too strong for them. You rescue the poor and needy from those who rob them. I could go to scripture after scripture where it's clear that God hates this abuse and he wants it to stop. But this has always just raised the question in my mind, which is, oh, I'm, I'm glad, God, that you want this abuse to stop, but what's your plan for actually doing that? What's your plan for Kumar and Alina and Jyoti? And it turns out the answer from the Bible, again, is pretty surprising because it turns out that we're the plan. And that God doesn't have another plan. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it says, He has told you, old man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 1.17 says, Seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. For those of us who take the Bible seriously, there can be no doubt that God has given to us the work of justice in the world. The problem is, I hear all these stories and statistics, and I just... I just feel bolted to my chair with despair. I just feel so powerless. I mean, what could we possibly do against all this hurricane of violence and abuse in the world? Well, in that moment, I think it's really helpful to remember when the disciples were feeling exactly the same way because Jesus had given them a completely impossible task. It's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And I don't know if you remember how this story actually begins, but... Jesus has been preaching for a long time and everybody's getting hungry. And so the disciples are, are brilliant. They go to, to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, why don't you send everybody home to get themselves fed? This, is what, this would have been the great miracle of when everybody went home and got themselves lunch. But Jesus doesn't want to miss out on the fun of this particular situation. And so he says, oh, no, no, no. You guys just feed them. Now, what you got to love about the disciples, right, is, is just the way they're just so patient to explain to Jesus what he clearly doesn't understand about the situation. And they say, oh, Jesus, we, we would love to do that. But there's 5,000 hungry people here. It would take a half year's wages to be able to feed them. And, and honestly, we, just, we don't have that kind of cash on us today, so... Back to you, Jesus. And what does Jesus say in response? Pretty interesting. He simply asks, well, what do you have? Well, they don't have nothing, so they have to present what they do have, which is the little boy with the sack lunch, right, that his mom had packed for him to go hear Jesus. And it, it has five loaves and two fish in it. And this is presented as the corporate resources that are supposed to meet this massive need. And this is when the Apostle Andrew enters the conversation because he's, he's sort of the intellectual in, in the group. He has a graduate degree in public policy from Northwestern, I think. And, <laughs> and so he looks at these five loaves and two fish and he says, what are these among so many? See, honestly, this would be me because I went to college and I took a math course and 
You've got 5,000 hungry people and five loaves and two fish. And honestly, honestly, if you were as sophisticated as I am, and if you understood the deeper sociological roots of the situation, you'd see there's really nothing for us to do but to sit in the paralysis of despair. But what does Jesus say? He simply says, what do you have? Will you give it to me? And in that moment, Jesus took responsibility for the miracle and proceeded to feed 5,000 people to overflowing. You notice he didn't ask the disciples to do a miracle. He didn't ask the disciples to do that which they did not have the power to do. He just asked them, will you give me what you have in faith so that I can do a miracle? And so at the end of the day, we have a story not of how powerful and amazing the disciples are, but we have a story about how powerful and amazing Jesus is. And I got to tell you, this is what I have seen for two decades at International Justice Mission, that as the people of God simply offer to Jesus what they have, he does miracles of power to defeat injustice. You know that Kumar is no longer held as a slave in that brick factory anymore as well as those hundred other slaves there. They were all set free. As friends like you were able to support our local IJM team of Indian lawyers and investigators, they were able to infiltrate that place, move with the authorities to rescue all hundred of them out, get them to places of aftercare, where over a two-year period of time, they stand on their own feet through graduation of our, our Freedom School. And it turns out that Kumar is brilliant. He actually goes back to school. He comes to work for IJM as an intern, and he now has been responsible for helping us rescue hundreds of other people from slavery. And here's what I can tell you. Kumar is no longer wondering whether or not there is a good God. He knows there's a good God because he saw God's people actually show up inside his nightmare. And now what is he doing? He is sharing that miracle with hundreds of others. Likewise for Alina in the Philippines, she's no longer like trembling and quivering with overwhelming fear because the bully can just abuse whoever he wants in her town. IJM's local team of Filipino lawyers and advocates were able to take on her case, have that chief of police removed from office, and he's now been properly prosecuted and he's serving a life sentence for the abuses that he's committed. And this has changed the whole calculation in that community about what he can get away, about what the bullies can get away with. And I was with Alina just about a month ago in the Philippines. I hadn't seen her for years. She just recently uh, uh, graduated from college with a degree in mass communication. She's one of the most articulate spokespeople in the country of the Philippines fighting against child sexual abuse. And she no longer worries or wonders whether or not there is a loving God or whether God is good, because she's seen the goodness of God in the people of God. And now she shares it with others as she mentors other young teenage girls who are likewise victims of this kind of abuse. Over the last several years, we have seen projects reduce child sex trafficking in Philippines, documented by outside experts of a 79%, 75%, and 86% in the three largest cities in the Philippines. This is the miracle of God taking what we offer and him doing works of power in the world. 
Likewise for Joe T. She's no longer being serially abused inside that brothel. Our local IJM team was able to infiltrate that place, get her out, get her to a place of Christian aftercare where she came to know the God who loves her. And she was so transformed by that experience that she said, you know what? I know where other kids can be found in forced prostitution. We missed them the first time. Let's go back and get them. So she led us on a second police raid and rescued seven more girls out. One of them was a girl named Kalindi. And Kalindi said to us, but I know where even more girls are being held. And she led us on a third police raid and took us to this underground dungeon underneath one of these brothels. And on this particular day, we were able to take out 24 of these girls who were held in a place of just unspeakable abuse and darkness. But see, for them, the body of Christ showed up in their darkness. And where they once could never believe that God is good, now they know. Because the God has shown his love and power through his people, and now they have an opportunity to not only know the goodness of God, but to share that goodness with others. You know, it used to be in the city of Calcutta where we would do rescues like this. We had no place for those girls to go where they could receive healing and where they could come to know Christ's love. And then Parkview Community Church came alongside a Christian ministry in Calcutta and said, well, let's build such a home. Let's make sure it's, it's high quality so that it provides the kind of care that these children deserve so they can come to a place of healing. And you guys made the Mahima home possible as well as two other homes there where I have been and I have seen these girls who were once in a fetal position from abuse now looking you straight in the eye with a smile on their face describing ways in which they are experiencing the love and goodness of God. All of this comes from the people of God not doing miracles not doing all that needs doing, but simply offering to God what they have. Because if you think about that story of the feeding of the 5,000, did Jesus actually need to have the lunch in order to do the miracle? Or did he maybe just love that little boy so much he just wanted to say, wait, 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 watch what I could do with your lunch today. This is what I think Jesus, our Savior, wants so much for us to be able to see. That if we're in places of feeling overwhelmed, powerless, like there's an ocean of injustice and abuse, and there's no way we could possibly make a difference, he wants to just release us from that sense and move us with power and joy into his work in the world. Particularly here, in terms of the struggle against violence and abuse, there's uh, an opportunity out at the resource center out there to sign up to be an IJM Freedom Partner. This is a way for you to walk alongside us every month with financial support, but also to help raise your voice when we have critical incidents like we just had in Kenya, and to pray for us as we have um, uh, urgent matters on a regular, informed basis. I would love if all of you would just be partners with us in this struggle for justice. And there's a way to do this that's very concrete and available to you out in the Resource Center, and so many of you have, and thank you for that. If that would be a source of joy, run to it. See how it is that God will take what you have and do great things in the world. Because in a world of so much suffering and hurt and need, why has God given us so much? You ever think about this? 
I mean, my answer to this emerges out of when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a great football player and, and sadly it turned out to be I was kind of a bad football player. But I had two older brothers who would sit me down and they would explain to me why I was a bad football player. And they would say, well, Gary, you see, you're small, but you're slow. And that was helpful in a weird way. And, and so one of the things I would do is I'd go to the weight room, right? And I would try to work out and I would try to get bigger and stronger just so I wouldn't get crushed all the time on the football field. And nothing would ever happen to my body, but I would go anyways. And, and I'd be working out in the weight room and I would always look over and there would see in my gym, there was always the special section for the bodybuilders. Have you seen these guys? I mean, they're just, they're huge, right? I mean, it's just freakish. I mean, just huge chests and arms and neck and legs and... I used to just look at all that muscle mass and all that massive strength and just ask, but what's it all for? They're bodybuilders and it's all for posing. (laughs) And the only time all that power and strength is ever brought to bear is there's the crisis in the kitchen, right? And the jam jar is stuck and and they pop open the jam jar. See, my prayer for us is that in a world of so much suffering and hurt and need, that God will not leave us opening jam jars. But he will rescue us from all things that are just too small. And rescue us from all things of fear. And lead us with strength into a world that's yearning to see the goodness of God through us. Let's pray together. Kind Father, thank you for the patience with which you allow us to know you more deeply. We ask even now, God, that you would take some word of truth that may be from you today and allow it to actually change us. God, we don't want to walk out of this sanctuary this morning exactly the same people who came in here. And so we ask you, God, to take your truth and transform us, move us to a place of great courage and hope and faith in you, and help us today to take that just one next good step to follow you in your work of justice in the world. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, and may it go to his glory. Amen. At the very core of what this church is, we've clearly stated that we are going to be a church that runs towards the injustices of the world. That we're not going to be a group of Christians who sit around and watch the things of the world unfold, but we are going to step in the gap. Gary, you and the folks at IJM have influenced that. And for that, we are incredibly grateful. So thank you very much for being here. So will you stand as we close our time together? I want to encourage you to stop by the Resource Center. Some of Gary's stuff is there. The freedom packets that he just talked about uh, are are there for you to, to, and there's even some signups for other things. And And all of the guest speakers from the Influence series, their stuff is there. So stop by and visit that on your way out. 
Let me pray for us as we, uh, as we dismiss. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this morning and for the reminder that you have given us of what it means to love the world. And as a group of people, we lift up Gary and his colleagues in this season of grief and mourning. We grieve with them the loss of their coworkers. But we ask, God, that in this time of grief and in this time of mourning, that your spirit would infuse each of their lives in such a way that their resolve to push against darkness would be increased. That you would use this tragedy to remind the world that there are people there who are working against evil in the name of Jesus. So will you wrap your arms around this organization? Remind them that there are churches and people all around the world praying for them, believing in them, supporting them, and encouraging them to keep up the fight. God, we give you glory for all of this. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Hey, have a great week and a great rest of the Sunday.